This is Dr. David Proden, and I want to thank you as we begin another journey into school and community safety. If you're looking for industrial safety expert, Appalachian State University professor, Dr. Timothy Ludwig, please visit www.safety-doc.com. Again, that's Dr. Timothy Ludwig at www.safety-doc.com. Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. Hi, everybody. This is David, and welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast. A thank you to John Grant and the 405 Media out of Los Angeles, California for airing the Safety Doc Podcast 2 p.m. PST, Monday through Saturday. Tune in to the405media.com. So I am in the bathroom getting ready in the morning and I hear my youngest daughter, who's eight, um, yell, help. And I go across the hall and she is bracing up her dresser because it's, it's falling over onto her. Uh, now, when the kids were little, we had the dressers um, affixed to the wall via the heavy uh, straps and things like that, obviously, because kids would pull the drawers out here, potentially, and climb up, and you didn't want it to tip over. Um, but she had pulled out all of her drawers looking for something and, of course, shifted the weight to the front and it started to tip on her. And she was just holding it up. And, and of course, I came in and was able to, to quickly stabilize it and get the drawers back in, but said, you know, can't ever do that <laughs> again because um, this is the consequence. Um, so, yeah, quite a, quite a surprise. Um, and it's, you know, those things can be very dangerous. In that case, I don't think it would have because it actually would have only fallen so far before it would have stopped by making contact with another piece of furniture. But still, um, lesson learned. Um, so I was busy updating my website, safetyphd.com, because a lot of my blog posts, my early blog posts from the show, so this is episode 77, the early blog post. Um, reference SoundCloud because that was the platform that hosted the Safety Doc podcast through about maybe podcast 40. And then I migrated over to Podbean. So all of those blog entries that went along with my podcast. So once I got around, you know, maybe podcast number seven, eight, nine, I started to do a regular blog entry. Um, so those had the link. If you want to listen to the show, click here, but that was the old SoundCloud link. So obviously didn't work. Um, so things are updated now to Podbean. Um, did some other updates on, on the website on some of the archival stuff, but there are some shows which are oddly missing off of the website. But I think what happened was I, I just never made a blog entry for some of the early shows, maybe like th one through 10. There's some of the shows that are, are missing. Now, all of the shows are on Podbean and Apple Podcasts, and actually they're all um, 
no, that's where they, <laughs> that's where they're at. Um, I don't think they're all on on YouTube. Some of the early versions aren't one through ten because I didn't know if I would continue podcasting. I was just kind of trying it out. So there are some lost um, video versions, but actually all of the audio versions are still out there, and I do have them actually saved on on two external hard drives. But yeah, updated everything. Um, and one of the catalysts for doing that was the show's growing to be more popular. And also my book, Lessons of Lower Manhattan, will be submitted in three weeks to my publisher. Complete it, um, you know, between 55,000 and 60,000 words. And there are references in the book to specific podcasts. Podcasts where I've interviewed people like um, Katie Pishan of Cajun Navy Relief, for example. And I need to make sure that all of those links are working. So somebody doesn't link on something and it's like it's on SoundCloud, but no, David doesn't have SoundCloud anymore. So, you know, you can't listen to it. So spent a lot of time, got that together. Um, things are looking good. And it, it's it's interesting too, because I can I sampled some of the podcasts. I can definitely tell when Hector Solis <laughs> of Awareness Podcast contacted me and helped me um, with techniques to improve my audio. And then when I upgraded it to a different microphone and when I went to some other software and rendered into a wave and then finally rendered from a wave to an MP3 and all these little incremental steps that just made my show sound better. And then also how my shows looked better when I went to some different lighting and stuff like that on YouTube. You know, not that many people watch the shows on YouTube, mostly, of course, they listen through Podbean and Apple Podcasts and so forth. But um, so getting into my book, it's an exciting time for me right now because I was given the contract by Roman and Littlefield Publishing House um, two years ago to write Lessons of Lore Manhattan with an advance. And here's how it kind of works with a publishing house. So there, there's different tiers of publishing house. There's, it, it's an A tier, B tier, C tier, and then kind of like everybody else. And most of the people are in the everybody else. And Roman and Littlefield um, registers as a B tier. So these are actual formal rankings. And as they would say, like an, an, you want to try to get an A tier. B tier is a very good publisher. C tier, not you know quite as prevalent and in, in then kind of everybody else in the mix. And for university work, an A and a B typically will count toward tenure. Now, that's something I teach university courses, but not as a full-time faculty member, so it doesn't have any impact on me. But it is pretty prestigious to have an offer, you know, from a B tier publishing house because actually the University of Wisconsin Press, um, and I graduated with... um, my PhD out EW-Madison is also a B tier, which is, again, very, very good. Um, so was working on the book for much of last summer, then took a break from it, um, and then really hit it hard this summer. Um, got a different editor to work with me, and really I've been writing every day going in and writing and editing and, and have really gotten into the flow um, of, of the book. So right now it's longer than my dissertation, which I believe was 44,000 words. So the book, again, for nonfiction, 55,000 to 60,000 is a pretty good-sized nonfiction, nonfiction book. Something I learned, too, was that you don't, when you're, when you're looking 
at a book, you, you need to consider word count because anybody can take um, a book and make the font bigger and make the margin smaller so they can get however many pages they want. Um, but what you really need to look at word count to see kind of what your value is, how, how word dense, I guess, the book is. So that's where you need, you know, once you cross, there's there's all these little thresholds too, which I kind of learned of. Once you cross beyond 50,000 in, in most categories, that is a novel. And it's novella, you know, between like 30 and 50, and then whatever is an essay and, you know, from down from there. But so I've also crossed into that novel link. So I'm right, I'm right where I want to be and right where the publishing house wanted me to be, which was in that 50,000 to 60,000 range. So doing the wrap-ups right now with my editor, um, which is great because I, I have a lot of content that I put in. And then, you know, with the with my editor, I can ask, you know, does this does this transition well from this thought to this thought? Or, you know, editor has, has great ideas, suggestions to, well, let's let's look at it this way. Or maybe this needs to be presented earlier in your in your book. So um, and it's been a, a complete uh, resource to have all of the podcasts to go back to and cite people I've interviewed through podcastings that I've done. And even before I started doing podcasts, I interviewed a number of people um, about things, even like two-way radio communications, and um, documented that in blog posts. So I was able to you know, harvest from some of that in addition to research, um, flat-out research. So it, it, it's a really good mix. It's, a, it's going to be a very interesting book. I'm going to get into it a little bit here when it gets closer to the release. Of course, I'll be focusing a lot and trying to get on a lot of podcasts to talk about the book and shows and everything else. And right now, I've had a, many requests by people to be a guest on the show. So I'm having to figure that out a little bit because... Um, I have a few projects, safety projects I'm doing under contract right now, which need to get done um, here in the next couple of weeks, obviously, because schools are starting across the nation, and I want to make sure that those get their due diligence, those get done. Um, so I'm needing to put a couple of these people at, at bay until I can allocate specific times and all of that to to interview them. But yeah, I have some really, really cool shows coming up. Um and I appreciate it, uh, Charles Mack, in, in, in the last show, talking about the side hustles, transitioning, and his new job is going great. He sent me uh, a couple emails. Things are, things are going uh, wonderful for him. So thank you, uh, Charles Mack. So um, I am reluctantly acknowledging the end of summer. <laughs> and for me, my, my favorite time of year is really like April through August. And then once I get into September, uh, I just know fall is around the corner. And not that I don't like cooler weather, but then I don't like winter. <laughs> and in Wisconsin, you know, the winters and they can be long. And of course, when you drive to work, you have to deal with the road issues and stuff like that. And it's just, ugh. And, and, and then, you know, November, getting dark at 4.15 in the afternoon. I mean, I'm, I can do without that. But um, so I'm, I'm kind of like giving up the, my, my grasp right now of, of what has been a, a really pretty good summer. Um, you know, we did the vacation to South Dakota, Dubuque, and up into Door County, is able to get in some biking. Front tire is flat, um, so I got to check out what's going on there. 
every time I seem to uh, be searching the internet now, it's like snake attacks or spiders or all of these these types of venomous things, which are, um, I, I think it's all probably blown out of proportion, but you know, if you go to other states, once you start to move south, you know, those things become realities of, of life. I mean, our neighbors um, spend part of their year in Florida um, in obviously winter, and they, she was bit by a spider and had a pretty significant reaction last year. So one of those things. Um, but yeah, this, so this show today is, we're going to talk about philosopher Thomas Hobbes. He lived from 1588 to 1679, so a, a long time ago, right? <laughs> uh, he, he wrote, um, I think, four, four books, but the one we're going to focus on today is uh, Leviathan, and it's a book about social contra- contract theories. And also, So that's something, too, that we haven't talked much on the show, but I want to talk about it because it impacts um, specifically my book, and then also from safety, the safety, what's happening in the country because of our interactions with the social contract theory. So so I need need to get that out. Um, so anyway, he was 64 when he wrote that book. And think about it, 1588 to 1679, he basically lived three times as long as the average person lived back then. So that's pretty incredible. I mean, once you he wrote Leviathan, he was he was sixty four when he wrote it, so he's already like double the age of you know most people, and um, and it was it was during a time of civil war in England, so some pretty brutal stuff. He looks like Sean Connery a little bit, like Sean Connery, a little, little taller, a little thinner, but Sean could be a Sean Connery relative, and. Um, yeah, just amazing. If if you Google Leviathan, you know, Hobbes Leviathan, the book cover, it is, it's this massive person, kind of like Poseidon looking. And the person is composed all of other people, like miniature, you know, people. So um, it's just, it's a stunning image. And I actually went on Amazon, I sell it as a poster. So um, I might get it, put it in back. Um, we'll see, but yeah. Um, some more about Hobbes. Let's, let, let's talk about Hobbes. Thomas Hobbes lived through the English Civil War. So took some notes, writing them down. We're going to take this verbatim. The long and bloody struggle between the parliament and crown motivated and shaped his political ideas. In Leviathan, Hobbes famously imagines human beings in a state of nature where life is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. So basically what he's saying is if there is no governing power, if there is no state, then people are just going to go after each other. They're just, um, you know, if, if you have something that I don't have, I'm going to try to take it from you, and it's just going to be this perpetual war state, perpetual state of chaos. And we know that chaos eventually tries to get to what's called a Taurus or some kind of normalcy, but your normalcy would pretty much be chaos is, is what Hobbes is saying. If you didn't have government, everybody would just be continually at war, which is probably, you know, of course, what he's seeing during the, the Civil War in England. So it's his sample. It's, it's kind of reflected in his work here. Um, 
So pretty nasty, right? Life is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Wow. Um, People will, Hobbes argues, quickly flee such a terrible condition, creating for their own protection a mighty sovereign. If it is to save human beings from their own nature, the sovereign must have nearly total power that you can never question. So he's talking like a monarch. So um, I don't see. It's not like he's talking big government. He's just talking like a very powerful government, like a ruler, like has you know all the power is kind of centralized in this ruler, not all these branches and all of all of these things that come out from from the ruler of this expansive government. He's just saying there needs to be somebody in charge and they need to be powerful. Otherwise, it's all going to go crazy. So so Hobbes is all about the philosophy of studying how people live together, how we function together as a society. How does this work? Later, it was John Locke that did that. Um, Machiavelli did it also more of a darker perspective. But I, I, I don't want to get into other philosophers and the similar vain, I want to focus on Hobbes, that civil peace and social unity are best achieved by the establishment of a commonwealth through social contract. Social contract. So if I'm going to have some sense of peace and order in my life, okay, then I am going to be willing to give something to the state gives the state some control over me, some laws that I have to abide by, some of my resources so the state can carry out their function um, or its function, I guess. So this is the thing the social contract is saying, I'm going to surrender some of my liberties. Now, of course, it sounds familiar because, you know, this argument came up more prominently with the Patriot Act after 9-11 um, which we'll get into in a little bit of giving up, you know, rights of privacy for national security. But more or less, Hobbes is saying, he's not saying like national security, like from some, you know, outside terrorist or anything of like that. He's just saying like man functions well or functions better when there's a ruler. But when in order for that to happen, we have to say there will be a ruler and we're going to listen to the ruler and give the ruler power to tell us what to do and things like that. So, and what we can do, what we can't do. Thank you for tuning in to the safety doc podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin. And the Safety Doc Podcast. So Hobbes' ideal commonwealth is ruled by a sovereign power responsible for protecting the security of the commonwealth and granted absolute authority to ensure the common defense. It does have this defense component to it too. Remember, you know, we're 
talking of, of a time of, at this time of civil war, but still warring, you know, warring nations um, in Europe. In his introduction, Hobbes describes his com- this commonwealth as an artificial person. And you see that in the image. It's, it's that man, kind of Poseidon-looking, that actually is a composite of hundreds of other, other people. So it's an artificial person. And as a body politic that mimics the human body. So in my book, Lessons of Lower Manhattan, I'm, I'm making an argument that the 500,000 people who were rescued from Lower Manhattan on 9-11-2001 by boat saw the rescue force of 134 boats, mostly tugs, as this artificial person kind of substituting for the state, became the, this, this sovereign power for a few hours. And I'll talk about that more. So anyway, he's saying, yeah, there needs there needs to be this commonwealth, this this artificial person. Um, so the um, so Leviathan, which Hobbes, you know, wrote, portrays the commonwealth as a gigantic human form built out of the bodies of its citizens. Again, it's an interesting image. Would have looked cool on my wall in college. Wish I would have known about it sooner. A friend of mine brought this up to me. Um, and said, have you looked into Hobbes' work? And I was like, no, well, check out Hobbes' Leviathan because it fits well with what you're writing about. And that person was right on. Um, so Leviathan is a word derived from Hebrew for sea monster and the name of the monstrous sea creature appearing in the Bible. The image constitutes the definitive metaphor for Hobbes' perfect government. His text attempts to prove the necessity of the Leviathan for preserving peace and preventing civil war. So again, very much saying we need to have some kind of either a monarch or, or preferably a monarch or ruler or a very powerful but small government that we are willing to give power to through the social construct. We'll trade you power, but you will then give us stability. Okay. And that, that's what he's all about. So Hobbes believed in this absolute monarchy where the king will dream and unchecked power over his subject. So it wasn't like you're voting. It's not a democracy, okay? This is, isn't what this is all about. It's more like, okay, this person's in charge. We will follow what they have to say and what they do, and it's all omnipotent, omnipowerful. Um, so again, let's take the context. He's living during the Civil War. Civil wars in England, much upheaval. So this is his lens. And the guy lives like 90 years through this stuff. So, wow. He eventually, his writings got so um, uh, criticized in, in England by political figures and by the church that he had to move to France for his own safety. But, yeah. And he, he burned some of his works. So who knows what else was out there? What What was the sequel to Leviathan. Um, guy was probably really, would have been a great science fiction writer today. Um, so here we go. M- me, you know, my, my book. Um, we, we've always had a social contract, you know, trading, you know, goods and goods and services. It's been around in the, you know, United States from the start. Um, we had, you know, more, if we look at volunteer services, like, you know, volunteer militia and things like that. And eventually those things became less volunteer, more 
forced by taxation, and we could say that you know taxation is is has further ingrained the social contract um, with the government. You know that the social contract includes things like you know schools and roads. Um, that the government is going to monitor the the airways, um, national defense. I mean, we could go on and on. Um, and the question is, how much of this have we agreed to, or we feel is necessary to prevent this this reboot or this complete collapse into this this brutish, short, chaotic, warring state that Hobbes says will happen if we don't have this government structure, this monarchy. So, I mean, Hobbes is not envisioning what we have today. Like, he's not envisioning all of these, these you know, services and things that the government's become. But, but that's where we've gone in the social contract, contract, social contract. So by paying our taxes, by t- paying our taxes and abiding by the laws, um, whether it be you know speed limits or or, or whatever, I mean the the end, countless endless laws, um, we are we are abiding by the social contract, and the, the social contract is always um, increasing. I mean it's not like we're getting less laws; we're always getting more laws, and in order to get the laws, it usually means we're giving up some type of liberties. September eleventh. 2001. Okay, I'm going to talk about a moment in time when I believe the social contract that we've lived under forever as a a nation since 1776. Okay, the social contract we've lived under that we have a government which it will um, look out for our, our. I guess best interest, although I don't think Hobbes is even saying best interest, just a government to tell you what to to do. Like the government is a ruler, it's dominance, the force is there. But that we have a defined government in control in protecting our borders and so forth. During 9-11, those few hours um, when the attacks are occurring between, you know, the Pentagon, the plane is down in Pennsylvania, the, the Twin Towers, I believe for these people who are being rescued from the harbor, 500,000 people, probably for millions others, there's a question. Has the government um, become unstable? And actually, we know that the defense system went to DEFCON 3, which is pretty serious. Um, That wasn't made public until, I believe, years later, but... um, meaning there was this very high alert level of what could be the next attack. Because was it possible that the terrorists had suitcase nuclear bombs that had been planted around D.C. and New York and Baltimore and Chicago and San Francisco? And just We didn't know if the wave, the planes were the first part of a more organized attack. Um, so, so that was very much out there. Even, even, you know, where was the New York Harbor mined, where the bridges, you know, laced with explosives. So, there could have been a social um, collapse, and 
I remember coming home from work and the gas line or the line to get gas was blocks long. And pretty soon the police started rationing, you know, they let people get so much, you know, gas and that was it. Um, and that leveled off, you know, a day later that was, that was over, but it doesn't take, um, a much as far as time when you have a significant event. I mean, if suddenly there is a, you know, a nuclear weapon, which is detonated in one of our cities, like DC or something, um, you know, like that, um, it is going to have this this ripple effect of instability um, within, you know, obviously minutes or, you know, some eruption of, um, what is it, Yellowstone or with a volcano, uh, significant earthquake in California, things like that. So, but I think what we did see on... September 11, 2001, was this collapse or perceived collapse of a, our government, or at least this this weakness, this punch, this this kind of knockout, staggering punch. And people needed the social contract to continue. So the, the contract was with the government, and now the government is, is shaky. The government could be, you know, receiving additional hits from multiple attacks, who knows what's going to go on. So as people are, these 500,000 people are coming to New York Harbor, Battery Park, to be rescued. You know, I talk about transference dynamic and the Taurus and Pareidolia Pareidolia and things like that. But another part of this, though, is I believe people need it. To, to to see this rescue force, which was mostly tugs. It's not military boats out there. It's mostly tugs, okay? Um, and they needed to see this force and then um, project onto this force that this has become a temporary new almost government or social, the, the, their social contract has been disrupted with the government. It's been broken with the government or, or damaged or they don't know where it's happy, what's happening with the government. They do know that here's this rescue force. I'm going to take my social contract and it's going to be with the rescue force right now. Um, and this, again, is not a, this is not a government entity. This is a grassroots, you know, rising rescue force. And as I say, systems will develop. I write about that in my book. They always have, they always will. Systems will develop rescue systems. So, but this this transfer happens, and it, and it happens for about nine hours. If you, if you kind of look at all of the dynamics of time and when people really, because remember we had what was it Tower Seven fell at five o'clock or something like that. So we we still had these these thoughts of this maybe this attack was still ongoing for quite a while. But after about nine hours, you know, once we got to about maybe seven o'clock at night, I think things things settled in. And by that time, of course, you know, the, the, you know, military had had it, got its forces into, you know, position for defense um, and, and things like that. And, and there had been a dampening of, of, you know, the attacks weren't continuing and things like that. So, um, but we did have this moment 
where I believe this this whole Hobbes Leviathan, this this social contract switched for millions of people from the government into these rescue forces, okay? Or for other people, it just got suspended and they were starting to become very nervous. I mean, too, if you're a prepper or subscribe to you know that philosophy, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but this is the moment when you start thinking, are we getting the militia together for survival? I mean, really. Um, so I think all of these things were on the cusp and then everything kind of leveled out you know, about nine hours later, about seven o'clock p.m. Um, on Eastern Time, September 11, 2001. So the thing is, folks, I don't, I don't think these micro reboots of these social constructs um, and these in- instances of the artificial man not not being the government but being something else, I, I don't think that's unique to 9/11. I'm going to give you. Other examples. So we talked about 9-11 where we had the Harper Rescue Force being this artificial man or or becoming our we have a social contract with with this force. Uh, Hurricane Katrina. So, you know, definitely we had a delayed response by the National Guard, by the government. Um, that was a catalyst for the start of Cajun Navy Relief, which again was grassroots organic rescue force of people with their own boats coming in, uh, bringing supplies, being funded out of donations, um, not having any government affiliation. Now, the strange thing with this is um, these things develop very quickly like this Harbor Rescue Force very quickly develops, functions very well, then dissolves. Same thing with Hurricane Katrina as the Cajun Navy starts to come in, kind of in its infancy, but at that time, Cajun Navy Relief um, does its job, and then it dissolves. Um, I'll say it dissolves. In a way, it doesn't because Cajun Navy Relief actually has parts of it where people stay around to help people rip out rotted drywall and stuff like that and get their houses, um, you know, recovered from these, these disasters that can be months. Of course, you know, if you, you got to go back to your job and things like that can only do so much, can only give so much time into these things. Um, but so hurricane Katrina showed that limitations on a government rescue and that social contract being strained or broken. And then the civilian contract, coming up between this this civilian force, the Cajun Navy Relief. Joplin, Missouri, 2011 devastating E5 tornado, 50,000 people in the town. Town's basically wiped out. And uh, a number of the fire stations, I think one was was operating, that was it. Um, it was a mother and daughter put together a, a website to get out information on, hey, here's where you can go for supplies, and things like that. Within like two hours of this, this um, tornado devastating the city. So it's a mother daughter doing this, and and they're putting this together. I think like through an iPhone, and then eventually it becomes 
Um, they get in some other volunteers, and it's still it's still there to this day. I think if you go to like JoplinTornadoInfo.com, they do presentations now. <laughs> they do presentations on how to to operate social media as a clearinghouse during um, natural disasters and in large scale disasters. You know, so but not government. Again, this is people. Um, these are civilians who are doing this without prior training, putting these systems together and scaling these things very rapidly, becoming this um, this force of social contract. People are going to this website, going to these people for stabilization of the situation. They're not going through 911 and other things, and they're going to this, to this source. And then what we saw in 2017 was remarkable with Hurricanes Harvey and Irma. Because truly at that time, Cajun Navy relief was very well established. And they they were swift in, in moving in to help the populace. Um, and, you know, the listen to the interview I did with Katie Pichon. She was talking about, you know, how her job was, you know, I think to try to get like a forklift somewhere that was – and, and from there, it, it turned into being a communications officer dispatching thousands of boats um, because people were going on Facebook Messenger and Zello. And then she was using these these organic this network that developed the Cajun Navy Relief and mobilized and got there with, with boats, fishing boats. Okay. And um, they're going in and, and you know... Um, also, I don't know, the boat with the big fan, fan boats, I guess, whatever, going in and rescuing people. She would get their call and dispatch people. She's working with other people to do this. But again, she doesn't have any training to do this. Cajun Navy Relief isn't funded by the government. He also had something interesting happen with Cajun Navy Relief. Um, a few government politicians came in and said, well, you know, we need to regulate these folks. And the re- reason, of course, they're doing that is, one, to show that the state is still holding the contract and they haven't shared it or handed it over to Cajun Navy Relief, you know. Um, but actually, the social contract for many people was with Cajun Navy Relief. Um, so, yeah. But anyway, um, amazing stuff to think about. So Cajun Navy Relief is is operating through the wallets of its members and through donations. And they're negotiating for like warehouse space. And there's this thing where they are working with FEMA, with local governments and things like that. Although like it's not overtly stated because these government agencies don't want to take on the liability in case somebody goes over a power line and gets electrocuted with a Cajun Navy relief. And they haven't gone through any training or stuff like that. Even though like, Accidents happen in rescues. Um, and the Cajun Navy Relief, you know, this was very efficient in, in, in what they, they did. Um, but you, you had some people coming out and saying, we need to regulate them. We need to make them take some courses and things like that, which would basically kill off this force because they're not going to take on the individual liability. I mean, maybe some would because that's just the way – that they internally are as a culture, like we're going to help. And, you know, if you need to feel that, 
your policies and your laws will keep us out, feel that. But when the need for help is there and the calls are unanswered because you don't have the resources and the technical expertise to do it, we're going to make those calls. We're, we're going to get there. We're going to help people out. But the populace, people quickly said, no, we're not going to regulate the Cajun Navy. We're not doing it. So the legislators who put this out there and said, we're going to put these bills out, um, those got thrashed. They're done. And, and they're probably not going to come back because it was such a strong movement from other legislators, plus the populace, plus even the responders and the, themselves, local responders, fire, police, EMS, things like that. Um, so I think that also sends a message that this uh, social contract, like with Cajun Navy Relief, is established and it's strong. So I don't know if it's this bifurcated or how many branches of social contracts we really have out there, but wouldn't people absolutely need it assistance for survival? They were going in part to the Cajun Navy Relief for their survival. That was their social con contract. Now imagine this like 20, 25, 30 years ago. Wouldn't have happened. One, it, the technology wasn't there to make this efficient to the level that it's become. Um, but also, it's just a time when people are, I don't know if they're realizing the limits to the government, if the government agencies themselves, FEMA, um, and I think it, it's hierarchical. So, I mean, if you have a local fire department, you don't have as many resources, but probably not as many restrictions if, if you're trying to move things through National Guard or FEMA and whatever. But um, you have too many layers to work through. It takes too much time, and you need to be very nimble and move very quickly. So um, also, I mean, so how does such an organization like the Cajun Navy Relief assemble? How does it scale and operate and then dissolve, you know, in parts of it stay alive, you know, if people can stay to help rip out drywall and help people build their homes again, that's great. And that does happen with Cajun Navy Relief. So it's pretty amazing. And for these, these things, these recovery forces to develop and rival or even outperform professional forces, and especially volunteer forces, volunteer fire departments, um, and this is not a knock on volunteer fire departments, but it's like, you know, the volunteer fire department might have one boat or two boats. And when their town is being inundated with water, they need more boats. And they're getting those boats through putting a call in, for example, to the Cajun Navy Relief. So as we get toward a close here, implications for school safety. Schools are investing like wild in expensive, unproven um, safety items or, or things that have proven benefits, but they're very narrow specific benefits like bollards, B-O-L-L-A-R-D-S. You know, they're the, the things that stick out of the concrete and they put them up now on sidewalks and things like that. So cars can't come up on a sidewalk and ram somebody. Um, so schools are putting some of these in front of the schools, but really, unless you like encase the entire school in bollards, uh, it, it, it's, you're always going to have non-bullard areas where cars can still get to. And people, kids still have to walk outside of the bullard areas to get to their homes or their buses and things. I mean, it's not like you can live your life behind a bullard. So yeah, for someone trying to do a, a car attack, trying to get up on a sidewalk, if you have bullards all the way on all of your sidewalks, 
probably will help for that. Um, if you have, you know, someone coming in with a gun, it's not going to do anything for them. So there's the implications for school safety. This the social contract, or where Hobbes is saying, um, we need to be able to surrender liberties in order to not live in this brutish chaos, just crazy life. We need to surrender. We surrendered a lot, like through the Patriot Act. And I'm not saying necessarily that that's all bad, but with the school stuff, no one's questioning what any school does for safety anymore. There's no questions. There's no deliberations. These safety grants are you know, like $100 million and whatever. I mean, these state things are they're crazy. People put in, we're going to remodel this entrance. We're going to do this and do that. Well, okay, but like really what's the, how are you going to prove that that has an impact on safety, a positive impact? We put all of this, this money without blinking an eye into giving kids inserts, bulletproof insert panels they can put into their backpacks, which is garbage. Like it's, that's, that's that's a, a waste of, of money. Um, that we are putting these these bollards out. That that we are you know putting bulletproof films on on doors and, or, and windows and stuff like that. And it, it, it I the research isn't there. Um, but again, these things aren't questioned. So people are putting the request in and they're being funded. It's you know schools will take it because it's visible. It's this visible social. Con- evidence of social contract that you have these things. So people are very willing to give this up. I remember a district um, that I worked with, and it was a it was a district that I would say a lot of the constituents questioned the government, skeptical of the government, and the the school went to the school district went to a policy where you couldn't enter the building without showing ID. And then they scanned ID and they had this whole system that they had grant funded where then it would run like this immediate background check and whatever. And I was like, oh my gosh, like that thing must have been a disaster. Like people angry and this is the government and intruding and all that. But no, it wasn't that way at all. In fact, people were happy to do that, happy to hand this over. Um, and the reason is, again, it's it's feeling I'm going to be safer. This is part of the social contract. I'm going to be safer. The kids will be safer. My kids will be safer. But really, is this making you safer? Because how are we measuring this? What's our baseline? What was happening before that all of a sudden caused us to do this? So what's overlooked? Threat detection and threat input. Um, are we trying to prevent these things by addressing youth code of violence, by helping kids and staff and parents how to identify what's in their environment, situational awareness, which, which we're horrible these days at situational awareness because everybody is focused locked on phones. There's something out there called Kim's Game. Kim's Game. If you look it up, um, it's used by... Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, also used by the military. They train snipers. Here's how this game works, Kim's game. So I might have six things that I pick out and put them in, in, you know, in front of somebody else and say, okay, look at these six things. And then I, I cover them up. And I say, okay, 
we wait a minute and say, what's underneath the, the towel? And they'd have to say, okay, there's a pen. Um, there's a paper clip over here. There was a phone. There's a calculator. There was an apple and whatever. Okay. So you add more things and you delay the time. So now you have to wait two minutes, three minutes to recall, and you change positions of things. And then you get to the point too where it's not saying, you know, you put a spoon and someone has to describe what it is. So they can't tell you it's a spoon. They have to say, it's a metal, it's an object made of metal. It's about um, eight inches long. You can use it to dig. It would um, be conductive of electricity. Um, it could possibly be bent to connect things together. I mean, so that you get into these types of things um, where you're describing the purpose of the item. In addition, you can use it to eat, to convey food from somewhere to your mouth, right? <laughs> so yeah, you have all of that going on. That's the question sometimes of how do we teach situational awareness to kids? Because I'll bring that up with saying, you know, threat detection, threat input. If we know more about these things, you know, think about, you know, submarine, one of the biggest uh, investment, you know, the submarine is two things. One is that it won't be detected and the other is that it detects what else is happening out there. Um, threat detection, putting money into threat detection. So I look at what gets funded. It's not threat detection. It is all fortification. But let's go back to Kim's game. Very easy. doesn't cost you anything. You can do it with anything around you. So I'm looking right here. I have a fish. I have a yellow highlighter. Let's get something else. I have a stamp with my name on it. Um, so it's, it's incredible how simple this is and how we can use this to teach situational awareness, observational skills to kids and to adults. And we just don't do it. We just don't do it. Um, we have history classes. So I was watching Kanye West on Jimmy Kimmel and, and Kanye talked about this maybe a week ago, but made me think about this. We have history classes, but nobody talks about future classes. You don't have a future class in a school saying, you know, here's, here's what we, um, here's, here's what to think about for the next five to 10 years. Like AI, what AI is going to look like, how it might impact your life. Um, that autonomous vehicles, you know, for example. So you're going to have, you know, that it's not a probability that's going to happen. So you're going to have time, then you're not going to be having to attend to driving. You're going to have time when you can do other things, whether it's just be, take a nap or you can actually do work things. Um, but you're going to have all of these things that are going to come into in, into play in, in the future and as we move towards singularity and, and, and robotics and stuff like that. And even in socially, you know, how we'll, we'll communicate, what jobs will look like, stuff like future classes, but we don't. Again, we don't. We don't future class. Um, and part of it is, I think, you know, what we think for the future, we, we create for the future. But anyway, um, implications for school safety. If not in... in 10 years, these things, 20 years will happen. 10 years from now, students are not going to be in a classroom five days a week. We already have online learning. I, I teach half my university classes online, have for 15 years. Do you think, really, that high school students are going to be going to school five days a week? No, they're going to be taking some of their courses online or virtual. 
And maybe we'll even have holographic courses, you know, where you'll things like that. I mean, who knows? But the technology is going to be there. It's just it's not going to make sense. You're going to be doing these things online. So how do you account for school safety when now you're you're probably as dense as ever in school population, meaning kids have the routine of going to school five days a week from eight to three. That's probably at its densest capacity point in time right now. And it will become less dense in the future, in 10 years, in 20 years. It will become less dense, even if there's more kids, which I don't believe there will be, but it'll be less dense because kids are going to be learning from different areas. So how do you do the safety drill? How do you you teach situational awareness when kids might only be on campus two days a week? How do you do that? I mean, it becomes more of a college campus feel. So how do you do this at elementary, at middle school, at high school? And how do you, how do you when you're trying to instill these things into kids and situational awareness, threat identification, threat reporting? And, you, and again, you, you have this whole issue of focus lock to deal with. Focus lock, the phone where I'm walking and I walk right into a sign pole because I haven't raised my eyes up and I just keep walking. It happens. So we have that. We have to think about. Um, also, are we overlooking mounting threats? Articles um, v- just recently, a Cleveland Indians baseball player treated for MRSA, the super bug, the staph bacteria. You know that that's um, was once kind of known to be in hospitals, then more or less in professional sports. You know, training rooms and locker rooms, and now in high schools and again, more into areas of weight rooms and fitness rooms and stuff, but it can be um, transmitted, you know, through through a door handle, you know, on a hot, warm, humid day, you're sweating and someone with, um, you know, MRSA has touched that door handle before you and it can live for weeks or months on that and your pores are open and it gets into your system. But are, are we, are we not... Um, addressing this you know some schools are buying these machines which these ozone creating machines and in these it have to block out the rooms and it shoots like this laser i mean it's kind of like, it's almost like out of the incredibles like for fifteen thousand bucks the wealthy districts your rural districts don't have this because they can't afford it and um but the question is is this is this a threat which is going to rival or become more significant for maiming loss of life than school violence because i think it was it's like 10,000 people a year perish from MRSA in the united states per the cdc i don't know the number of kids because this isn't reported very well right now they're starting to gather data better in 2014 president obama put together a mandate that by 2020 there needed to be an intact data collection process for MRSA uh, infections and then also plans to, to keep MRSA at bay. And people argue that MRSA has decreased in venues, but um, we also don't have a reliable reporting system to indicate where it really is at. But th- that could that could s- fire up at any moment. Cyber attacks too. Um, the new schools are being built with tons of electronics, electronic doors, and all of this. You know the the spot um, or the, the shot spotters, which can instantly lock doors. Well, that can be hacked. And most schools, you know, do we think about it. How many times do you get contacted by your retailer, your bank? They were hacked. 
your information. You don't think of these schools, they don't employ that depth of security that the bank does, that the retailer does. So what if the system's hacked? What if, what if the doors don't lock? Um, and, or what if a fire drill is activated and shooters are, have taken up a position outside? I'm just saying we're, we're looking very narrow at this fortification when we're barreling ahead and there are other significant threats out there that we're just not even acknowledging. So I'm frustrated by the lack of threat detection and the fact that we have become just so narrow right now in safety. As we get into Lessons of Lower Manhattan, I'm so excited for where that book is and the impact I believe it's going to make in the safety community um, and looking at some topics, some themes such as the, the Taurus or how we try to make our days as similar as possible. Nothing can be the same. Transference, which is kind of the social contract in a way. Um, that doesn't get talked about. Usually things that get talked about in disasters are like communications and and how systems were um, staged and put into action, things like that. And while those are important, there's like deep psychological factors of people who allow themselves to be rescues and recipients of, of rescue. And that's changing very rapidly. About 2011, it, it kind of tipped over this point where Remember I talked about the Cajun Navy relief, people using Facebook Messenger and Zello app to access Cajun Navy relief to be rescued. Um, that's only going to continue. Um, so we need to be prepared for that. What does it look like in a school? What does it look like when the rescue force might not be the police necessarily? Um, if there's like a, a tornado that hits or something like that. Um, but the rescue force might be some organic structure which has come together. How will you interface with that? Will you embrace it? Will you say, no, it's not part of our safety plan, so we cannot work with you? How, how do you do that? How do, where, where does the flexibility lie? Where, do, where does the discretion lie with that? So, All right, folks. I want to thank you again for listening to the Safety Doc Podcast. Check out safetyphd.com. That's where all of the blog posts are. Um, and you can go back and back and back and back and back to some of the, the stuff actually like around even 2013, 14, I did some really in-depth um, posts, some interviews, some more research-based things. It's probably like in the early stages of my doctoral work and it shows up there. And you can actually go back into some of the earlier um, shows uh, listen to them, watch them on, on YouTube. There's some really powerful ones. Uh, Dave Hyde, um, uh, who was a man who's blind, we talked about safety. Um, Bree Hansen, who's an international traveler, talked about different ways to stay safe traveling, um, even to the point where she was detained um, on one of her trips and, and just how she had worked through through that. So I think it's, you know, there's, there's a lot out there now that we're at 77 shows. And that's, again, it's exciting for me. Thank you so much and stay safe, everybody. This has been the Safety Doc Podcast. 
with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Remember to check back each week for the latest, best, and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe.